Just a quick message before the show begins. We're a year in now and I've really enjoyed doing this and I hope you've been enjoying it too. If you have, then please like and share the content and get in touch with any thoughts and feedback and hopefully we can keep growing the show and getting more incredible guests. Thanks and back to the show. I'm Adam Gow, the DJ formerly and sometimes currently known as Waxon. Welcome to the Once a DJ podcast. DJing and DJ culture have been a huge part of my life for better or worse. They've given me a massive buzz at times and loads of stress at others and taught me a load of valuable lessons along the way. On this podcast I speak to DJs from around the world who've made the names when it was just about skills and selection, not social media followers. We'll discuss their journey through Ascendancy and what part it plays in their life now. Whether they're still on the scene, said goodbye to the decks forever, or still get a sneaky mix in when life gives them the chance. Whatever road they've travelled, they were always once a DJ. So welcome back to Once a DJ. We're here with my good friend John First to have a look at his path through club DJing, turntablism and production, and see how pursuing different avenues can make you a really strong all-rounder. John, thanks for coming on today. How are you doing? I'm doing good, thank you, Adam. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? I'm really good, thanks. Excited to get into it. So um, let's kick off then with how you got into DJing. So I got into DJing originally because I wanted to be a turntablist in a metal band. I had been making beats a little bit on like really cheap old software like EJ. Do you remember EJ? Mm. Yeah, so I had the EJ Extreme, which is like the new metal version of of EJ. <laughs> so you could throw in like loops and uh, you could even like do basic like edits of stock videos with it and stuff. But yeah, so at the time I was like 11, 12 and all my friends it was like the peak time of like new metal and electronic music verging into like popular rock music on TV. So is this late nineties? Yeah, this would have been, yeah, late ni- late nineties, early two thousands at the very latest. And so, yeah, but bands like Incubus, Linkin Park, Limp Bizkit, Slipknot, uh, Deftones, uh, bands like that. And, and also just how, certain records on TV, this is when Top of the Pops was still a thing, like seeing, it was when Jason Nevins had, did the remix of Run DMC that I think reached number yeah. one and that had scratching in it. And it it was always like the scratching that drew me in. I was like, how do they make these noises? And it was like a cool, yeah, it was just like a cool sound palette I wanted to learn more about and how to make it. And I became really fascinated with it. And I remember there was one song in particular that I've um, I always reference, which was Lincoln Park did a song with the Executioners from New York called "It's Going yeah. Down," which was that was actually on the Executioners album. But that's how I discovered them, and I bought that CD single with my pocket money when I was twelve, I think. And the B side of that was a song called "Execution of a Bum Rush," which was Executioners versus Beat Junkies. And was like a proper DJ song. So the scratching in it, yeah. beat juggling, scratching up lyrics. It was like a really full composed song, but with scratching as the lead instrument. And I knew then I, I need to learn how to do this. So granted, I was 11 or 12 at the time. So the, I started off making beats on this like very cheap software or free demo software and started saving up and eventually got turntables when I was 15. So about five years ago. And I, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and uh, I, yeah, became obsessed with learning how to scratch basically and started collecting records, um, finding songs, collecting the sort of music I like to listen to and through the metal stuff, discovering what songs they were sampling, which is a lot of old hip hop records. And like particularly with like Limp Bizkit, their their DJ DJ Lethal was one of the producers and the tour DJ for House of Pain, mm. and he was sampling a lot of things like uh, Eric being uh, Eric being Rakim, um, and a lot of classic breaks and things in the Limp Bizkit songs. So I then got really into House of Pain, Eric being Rakim, uh, and Cypress Hill, Funk Dubious, a lot of that era of like, DJ Mugs production, especially at that time. And then started going to record shops and asking for recommendations and discovered things like Madlib, DJ Shadow, 
and it's got really hooked on like that darker DJ Shadow kind of vibe, Massive Attack, stuff like that, Portishead. So when you were going into record shops then? Yeah. Were you going in talking specifically about hip-hop or were you saying to them about, I like new metal as well? Because I say this because new metal is a really interesting genre, movement, time, yeah. I think. And it's a time that now we've had 20 years to look back on it. There's some really good stuff in there. I, th- I really enjoy it. I think it's a lot of fun. Um, but I think music, I think, think some of the production's amazing on it. And like you say, it's it, like rap and rock have had this really tricky relationship over the years. Probably for every time rap and rock's been done well together, there's been quite a few times where it's been done badly. Sure. And new metal was it wasn't a couple of songs where it was fused well it was an entire movement of, of fusing the two things so i don't I, I don't know that it gets its flowers enough and like you say people like was it mike shinoda in lincoln park that was really pushing the um the work with like the executioners for example i believe so um i know he was the main songwriter and producer and he came from a rap background himself right so yeah he was probably the lead in, in that yeah yeah but but then yeah i guess at at that time as well so but at that time people that were really into hip-hop might kind of look down on new metal i think it was the same from both sides like i i was their core audience as like a young angsty pre-teenager for sure so i thought it was the (laughs) the best thing ever and there's still some bands like that kind of got thrown in with that uh genre who didn't necessarily musically fit in like deftones for example i don't think are like a new like a new metal band in inverted commas but I like they're one of my favorite bands from that era and I still listen to them all the time um but uh yeah like to answer your question back then I remember going to um so my local record store at the time was uh, was Banquet Records in Kingston formerly Beggar's Banquet around that time and it changed and compared to a lot of record stores at the time they had a lot of time for to talk to people and like mm. it used to i don't know what your experiences or other listeners who uh may have had experience digging and stuff in the 2000s or earlier but it was quite intimidating especially as a young person going to record stores especially if it was like a specialist store like a hip-hop store or something like that you had to kind of really know your stuff or people would look down a little bit or like say only save records for their their mates and things like that so to ask questions it like it was a bit like you had to pay your dues before um, asking questions yeah. about, oh, what's that song playing? Can you tell me what that is? Or I like this. Can you recommend me something? They'd be like, figure it out for yourself, mate, kind of, kind of thing. Yeah, with, there was a guy bang- in our local. Sorry, there was a guy in our local shop that used to refuse to sell people things. <laughs> yeah, that's a, yeah. Bit of a mad business decision as well. But um, definitely, yeah. Uh, but banquet were really, really um, banquet were really supportive and encouraging to me. Like uh, particularly. Uh, there's Mike and John who are the owners and another DJ called Buddy Peace. He doesn't work there anymore. Um, but he's like one of my favorite DJs. I could talk about Buddy for, for hours, but uh, in a non-weird way. And I, <laughs> uh, and um, uh, but yeah, about his influence and stuff, he's amazing. Uh, but yeah, I would I would come in and say like, yeah, I really like this. And, they, and I particularly, particularly Nick, that's Buddy, he, he would say, oh yeah, you might enjoy this and show me like more... Um, of the moment beat stuff, which I would have got into because like, oh yeah, it's it's like the darker stuff from these rock bands when they have the interludes and things, but it's a lot more futuristic yeah. and sound. And that's how I kind of, that was my gateway into electronic stuff and how I got into like eventually what became the LA beat scene and and then just electronic music in, in general. That was my door opening and I started getting to drum and bass and early dubstep and and dance dance music you know um but yeah like i remember john at the store saying i um john i think you're the only person who comes in and buys like emo seven inches and battle breaks at the, in the same order like <laughs> I, I was like going on both like two very very niche opposites for yeah. a little while as a teenager because I was, I was just into like hardcore post-hardcore emo metal everything but then at the same time all this like new electronic stuff and over time i'm kind of left the rock stuff bar a couple of bands behind and was just fully into the electronic stuff. And by the time I was at uni, I was like deep in that. And 
yeah, it started playing out when I was 18 through through the record store um, initially. And then, yeah, I've been doing it ever since. It's been... Were your initial sets long? Because just for the listeners, I've I've kind of grown up knowing John from afar and from close at different times. Um, not too close. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I know quite early on when you, you started running your own nights at university, yeah. you were doing like six and seven hour sets, weren't you? Yeah, when, when I was like 18, 19, I was still living near London and I started playing out regularly with the banquet guys at their night braille, which is like a hip hop and funk and beats kind of night. And there was a few times where they couldn't make it and I covered for them and I would play all night or bring a friend or something. And that was like four or five hours between me and another person. And by the time I started doing my own nights, particularly when it wasn't during term time, because um, I live now in Leicester and it's a very university centric city. And yeah, during the summer, sometimes I've just DJ on my own and it was from 10 PM to five, six, seven AM on my own. How many, how many bags of records were you taking with you? Cause this is before digital, isn't it? But by, by then I was on, I was on digital. I was using Serato, but even still, yeah. like it was a real, real, uh, lesson in learning how to read a crowd and, and pace myself. And things have changed mm. quite a lot since then. Now, now if I'm booked, it'll be for an hour, 90 minutes as a guest or like a headliner or whatever. And because there are so many more DJs, it's quite rare to be booked just to play on my own for a long set like that. Yeah. Because um, there's so many people who want to play out and it makes sense in terms of bringing more people in, all that sort of stuff. So do you think even because... Because with that, that, that must be a status thing as well because you're at that sort of level with your DJing now, I would guess. Um, oh, that, that I only play X amount of hours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think I've, I don't think I've ever tried to push it as a thing I do, like doing really long sets like that other than locally where, um, like I have a history of doing that, but for sure there's like, there's plenty of DJs who'll, who'll do all night long sets. The first one that jumped to mind would be Mr. Scruff who would yeah. come with a loads of records and just do his thing for hours and slowly build it up. That's how basically how I learned how to DJ rather than like smashing it for an hour and doing like a big show. And that kind of changed for me as I started getting booked as a guest more, particularly after DMC and my success there and being expected to do a certain type of set. So things have changed a bit, but at some stage I'd like to, to do more sets like that. Cause I really enjoy it. Cause I don't often get to play those like, like more, more chilled out records and really build up a room. I'm kind of booked at a yeah. peak time these days. So there's a certain type of record I'll be playing. Do you ever get a warm-up DJ? Are you, well, presuming that sometimes you're there when the warm-up DJ's on. Do you yeah. ever hear a warm-up DJ and think, I wish I was warming up for myself? <laughs> like, would you warm up in a different... Because you know how to warm up for you. Because warm-up DJ, I've discussed this with people a couple of times on this podcast, and it's a very specific skill. Like when you first start DJing, I think, and you're just thinking, oh, I want to get my name on a flyer and things like this. You look, you look at the warm-up DJ set as being, it's the unglamorous one. Whereas I think as you, as you go on, you realize the importance of that. You're setting the tone yeah. for the night. I think it is really important, particularly if it's a, if it's an event, which is like, which if it's an, a regular event where you've got, um, like a built-in crowd, like a, a really, really good warm-up DJ can really make an event and create, yeah, yeah create that kind of consistency and, and without a better expression, just like, yeah, warm the crowd up into the latest stuff. So you have like the full spectrum of sounds within whatever the night is trying to, trying to do or represent sonically. Uh, some, like I, I, I love playing sets like that as well. Like I don't get to do it very often. Um, I haven't for a while. Like I used to do a lot of like hip hop warm up events for like bigger acts when they would come through Leicester, for example, or, or sometimes yeah. in London. And I really enjoy doing that as an alternative to what I do other times. But um, I, it's, it's it's a mixed bag with have I would I ever want to warm up for myself? Um, there's you don't see it as much anymore because sets seem to be particularly within like more electronic music. It's like here's an hour by this person. There's like a bit of applause and then there's an hour by the next person. And that's quite different to how I, I learned, which was 
you would play for your set amount of time, even if it was an hour, but you would always mix into the person before you and yeah. find a way of transitioning for the next person. So I would research whoever was playing after me, either by going to their events in advance and checking out what they played and like playing or finding their songs if they were a known name and things like that and go, okay, this person plays a lot of uh, Broken Beat or something like that. So I might be playing um, like hip-hop and beatsy kind of stuff for this event, but I might, towards the end of my set, slightly push it up and maybe like do a little peak and trough in energy so that, that that next DJ has got the dynamics there to make a decision. They've got the room, the headroom, essentially, to go, well, I could continue this vibe or I could go in a completely different direction. And it's giving them the space. And I, I do find, uh, and I understand why it's not a criticism, but I do understand these days that people are having like, there's like an hour and that's your moment. And then there's like a little, like literally a rest. And then the next person starts. That's kind of a bit more self-focused though, isn't it? Yeah, it's like seeing a band or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's is that something that's happened since lockdown that change? No, I've I've noticed that for a long time, particularly yeah, but particularly within dance music where it's more like where there's some sort of stage and audiences are looking towards the stage. There there's quite often now like a clear cutoff and I've noticed that for quite a long time. I suppose maybe that's just another evolution. I'm reading Harold Heath's book at the moment and yeah. and there's a lot of speaking in that about the position of a dj booth whereas like in the acid house era you're in a corner no one can see you you're just djing away and that's that and then kind of the middle of the 90s the the dj starts to progress to being the centerpiece and i suppose like you say now the dj is treated as this like isolated act rather than it being a night yeah and i i i do think as well those those events where i was playing for a long time they were always at venues where the booth was kind of a little bit out of the way at that first place, when I was doing stuff with um, the guys from Banquet, it was literally the old, um, um, like, clothes cupboard. What's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> cloakroom. It was the, the old cloakroom. And the, the DJ booth was facing, like, a wall. So you'd have to, like, peer out over this uh, stable door to see what the dance floor was doing if they are liking the tunes. And they go, all right, yeah, right. we're still into it. Find out the next record and have <laughs> – your records would be facing one wall. The decks would be facing the other wall. And you kind of had to just peer out and see if everything was all right. And if it was busy, because you'd always get that DJ nerds around you at that time, checking your records or how you're scratching or whatever. So you'd have kind of like peer around everyone. Sorry, guys. I I just want to see if people are actually enjoying this because it was so removed from the dance floor. Um, And at at this other place, Softbeck, it it was in the dance floor, but it was very low. It was like audience height. And it was less about that at that point. Yeah. I, I wonder if that really, I wonder if that position of the DJ booth has an effect on the crowd as to how they're going to consume the music or consume the experience of your performance. I wonder if, if, if you're at their level, they're going to just treat it like, okay, this, the, the entertainment is a bit less significant and we're just going to crack on with our dancing and our socializing. It'd be interesting to know a bit about that. Yeah. I definitely think it plays a big part in, in the speed of how people are mixing, um, what sort of music they play. It, it's less about having all these big moments where the, the DJs are like, interacting with the audience and more just about setting a consistent vibe. And it, it seems a bit mm. more free when the DJ booth's not there. Yeah. Um, so just one more question before we just go off this, this area. Yeah. When you were, when you, you were mixing and you were considering the next DJ, because I think that's a really cool thing to do and I've never, ever thought like that mm. because it's, it's probably a level of ego in there where you're just concentrating on, I want people to my, like my set the best. If, D, if DJs caught that you were really making it smooth for them to come in, did they consciously appreciate and observe that and kind of mention it to you? I think it's a generational thing because it's not so common these days. And Mm. particularly when I started out and was playing more events, which were linked to hip hop, I was playing with people who were the generation before me or maybe two generations before me. And they'd really appreciate it. And we'd have conversations sometimes about, oh, have you played this record? Because I was thinking about playing it too and all that that sort of thing to to have, because we're thinking about the overall event rather than an individual set. But then, then there's been other times where 
I've not had it to, like to this extent, but I've heard that some people get offended if someone mixes into their last song now because it's like you're cutting their moment short. Wow. Um, like I fa- yeah, I, I have faded out someone's like last song so I could fade mine in at the same time. Like seamlessly, I was beat matching mm. and stuff. I could tell like, oh, I think maybe they've taken that the wrong way and that I'm like cutting their tune off. Whereas I'm trying to like, transition to keep the audience dancing within the transition. Um, but yes, yeah, so I, I feel maybe it's like less of an etiquette thing now and, and the reverse is more polite. It's interesting to see how things change. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying Once a DJ. I wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on. So I've teamed up with SureShot Shop to create some Once a DJ 45 RPM adapter clamps. These are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup. These are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from oncedj.bigcartel.com and if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, check out showshotshop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start, or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ, and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code ONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what you're waiting for, visit howtomakemusic.co. I wonder if the low barrier to entry for DJing now, Mm -hmm. you know, DJs don't have to pay the dues in the same way to get on a stage or to get in a room and DJ, you know, it's, it's, it's probably quite easy to go somewhere with a laptop and go, yeah, I'll come here and I'll DJ for free. And someone goes, right, fine. You know, when we were starting out and the people before us, you had to have your equipment, you had to have a load of records, you had to lug things around that there was a lot to it. It it was harder to start. And so maybe there was a bit more of a respect then as well. And the, the ecosystem was just totally different. And maybe because there's not that same challenge involved, maybe it's harder for them to keep ego in check. And it is a bit more, this is about me, rather than, you know, this culture of, as we understand it, it's about a night. Hmm, perhaps. Like, it's an interesting topic about the ease of entry now. Because it's, it's, it's both sides of things. Like, I think it's awesome that you can DJ off your, your phone now or on the internet all sorts of things like the ease of access to a way of djing has never been um cheaper or easier but i guess on the other side of it it's going to become a lot more saturated because there's so many more people interested in doing it um but in terms of like learning those do's and don'ts and things like that i i i think that that some of that might be lost generation to generation as it becomes easier and those conversations aren't had. Because quite often, um, like I, I would, I can only speak from my own experience, but I'd have like mental kind of figures within the scene that yeah. I would talk to and forums, which is obviously how we met and things like that, where I could ask like, it, like questions about etiquette, essentially, um, yeah. as well as like the technical side of things. So I was learning by listening to people who'd had maybe a 10 years experience on me and jamming with people who'd done battles or DJ were DJing out or whatever. And I picked those up that up that way. And I'm sure people do that in the same way. Now it's hard to, it's hard to know. I don't want to make any like general statements about how people do things now. Um, but there's definitely a gap, like a, a shorter gap between getting your first decks or your first controller and playing out for the first time than there was back then. But I'm also a very obsessive person, so, and I was underage <laughs> when I started, so um, I didn't play out for, I think my first proper set out, I'd been 
I had like nearly four years of experience before I ever played my first proper, proper gig. Whereas now I meet people who've been DJing like a month and I've got a controller and they're like, okay, I'm ready. I'll go do my first gig. I suppose what's different with that Mm. is one thing is the physical element of it. I I don't know about you. um, My first couple of sets, probably for quite a while, I I could barely get a needle on a record because I was shaking so much. Yeah. and I think with the controller, you don't have that. You know, you can potentially sync up your beats. There's a lot you can do to make up for that adrenaline and the physical challenge of nerves. There's less factors that can go wrong now, like other than like like your your USB is not working or or something yeah. like that. the The technical side of mixing is far simpler, so it can be easier to execute the idea. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think in some ways it's good because. There's not the financial investment that we had to make growing up, like buying a record collection, for example, which is awesome. Like, yeah. um, I mean, it's not awesome for people who sell records, but it's 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 awesome for someone who's got a passion for learning how to mix and stuff like that. Sure. And it's the ease of access means that anyone can give it a go, and it makes it um, far more accessible economically for people. So, like, maybe like. Um, uh, again, I'm making sweep, kind of making a sweeping statement, but DJ equipment is pretty expensive, like especially if you're buying like the industry standard gear, and that prices a lot of people out of it from ever being ever doing it. And sometimes that's the communities where this sort of music is from, or originates from. And for there to be accessible things like even like mixing on your phone and things like that, so people can learn and then take that knowledge and idea and then like jump in and start mixing off the back of that. Um, is great in my opinion. Uh, I don't know. I think, we're, we're, yeah, there's loads of interesting stuff in what we're saying. I don't know if I have like a specific point. I think there's good. There's, yeah. there's, lo- there's loads of really good things as a result of things changing. Yeah, yeah. And I think it, if it's things that enable people to push the envelope in totally different ways, yeah, then it's good. You can either take these ways that things become easier and just take them for granted and just sit with that easy life, or you can yeah. go, okay, we've got this easy stuff. How can we push on and create a new way to DJ, a way to express using the gear? I completely agree. I think as well that there's a, a conversation about um, just because, and, and I'm not implying you're saying this, I'm, I'm just talking, in general, there is, there's like a conversation about people have it too easy now and and or, or there's like certain rules that we had in our way of doing things and they're not being respected by maybe some new people who are doing it but i i it's always supposed to be like it at its roots like a counterculture experience yeah so things get reinvented and um yeah i think that's in- in- inevitable I've definitely experienced that um, as a relatively like young person in the battling scene, being really into the idea of using new technology and getting a little bit of pushback from people who would come from like the vinyl only days because I was using cue points and effects and things like that. And yeah, let's just wind it back then. Um, so we've talked quite a bit about your club DJing, and I think it's a really, really important part of of your of your brand and you as a DJ and and your USP. Um, So in parallel with the club DJing, um, you know, you've achieved a lot with scratching and battle DJing. So with that, just before we get into that, am I right in thinking you were a guitarist as well when you were um, an emo new metal kid? (laughs) Um, Very briefly, I, 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 I played for about a couple of years and then decided that I was going to go all in with beats and scratching and stuff. Were you, were you kind of trying to learn to shred then? That, that, that type of, you know, power chords, fast? Yeah, I was playing a lot of metal and, um, yeah, I wanted to be in like a hardcore band or something, basically, or a metal band. Yeah, you see, I'm only just thinking about this now and how it relates to your scratching and your style. Um so we've talked about where you kind of learned about scratching. How did you develop scratching itself? What was your what was your path in in learning that side of DJing? So my path into learning scratching was initially by ear. 
Um, I didn't know anyone growing up who was into hip hop or like rap or electronic music. Yeah. So I would try and emulate by ear scratches on the records that I knew had scratching in and then, or like look at the um, linear notes of records and like try and find copies of eBay of the records that are being sampled and then learn scratches off those and things like that, find the samples. And then eventually I found forums, um, various DJ forums and turntablist ones and discovered what battling was, went to my first ever DMC event. I think that was 2004, 2005. And saw that as like, a, oh, this is a platform for this sort of stuff. And got really into watching the DVDs and videos and yeah, like an, a lot of learning by ear and trial and error because this was still pre-YouTube and things like that for tutorials. And yeah, I'd meet up with people I I knew were in, in London from the forums who would be, who were, I'm really grateful, were happy to hang out with me as a, like a younger person and show me stuff and we'd have jams and things like that. And uh, yeah, I just, I just practiced a lot, like in my school holidays, basically. And, um, and just like kept, just kept at it. Like I kind of took every opportunity I could. Like I played in some bands when I was studying music for a year. I did a, did my first like proper live show with, um, my friend Button Basher when I was 19. That was just jumping into learning Ableton and stuff as well. It was, it was really mm. just like any, any chance I can try and use this as an instrument with what I've learned already. I wasn't very good at that point, but just knowing what I could, yeah, like trying to implement stuff and just being really keen and practicing as much as I could. And then um, the actual battle stuff properly, I started in my final year of uni. I did a few before, but a friend of mine was organizing a local DMC. I was a resident at the uh, uh, the nightclub that was being held. And they're like, well, you've got to enter. You're like the local person who does scratching. And I was just like a club DJ who <laughs> scratched a bit. So I learned how to beat juggle for this event. And wow. And I got, yeah, I won, I won and got to the UK final and I thought, well, that was fun. And I didn't place, but it was fun. I, I met the executioners, like the guys I mentioned earlier. And I was like, oh, that was a really fun experience. Just wind it back. Sorry. You learned to DJ for the local DMC heat. I, I learned how to beat juggle for uh, it. Le- learned to beat juggle for the um, DMC heat and you won. You must've picked it up pretty quickly then. Um, it was very basic. Like, uh, uh, yeah, I've taken that one off my YouTube for sure. <laughs> but uh, um, but yeah, like yeah, I'd been by the time I, I won, I'd been juggling for like two and a bit years. Like like as I, when I won the online competition in, in 2013. Yeah. But I was just very focused with my learning in terms of trying to learn specific things. And yeah, at that point, like I didn't really know anything like super technical. By the time I won, like I think I don't think I could do flare scratching at that point. I was just doing like very old school scratches fast. And had right. I had an idea of like composition and using effects and things that I learned from club DJing and was just trying to implement all these ideas and really compose it. And I think that was what like kind of set me apart at that time compared to more people with a lot more technical experience. And that kind of came later for me. Yeah, I think this is the bit where I'll give you your flowers. Cause I don't know if I've said this to you before, but I, I really kind of compare, I think, cause I used to play guitar, um, and I kind of compare certain guitarists to turntablists. So for me, like mixed master Mike's a bit like, like a Jimi Hendrix mm. or maybe, maybe a Frank Zappa. Zappa probably more as a, as a, a composer because he's just so out there. Yeah. Um, but I think for you, you make me think of Tom Morello. I'll, I'll, I'll happily take that just because Tom Morello's awesome. <laughs> well, yeah, take it. It's, and, and the thing for that is, I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this. I'm, I'm, I'd imagine there's a good chance you have, but the way that you you don't use a turntable and a mixer in a way that they're kind of separate things, you use it all together. You really play the mixer as an instrument and the way you use effects and things like that. I think it's like Tom Morello, he's technically gifted, but he also uses the guitar, finds very different ways to make sounds and, and to play with it. Um, so yeah, that that's... It kind of makes sense with you learning guitar at the age that you did. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you ever thought about it like that before. It's it's a very different style. When I saw your DMC, 
I'd probably not seen much of your stuff for a little while then. Uh, and just, just how it all came together and it all worked, I was absolutely blown away by it because it's like you're like playing the mixer. And it's just a, a really fresh, different way of DJing, I think. I can, I can understand. I mean, like, yeah, I definitely don't think I'm Tom Morello, just for, for the record. Uh, but like, um, but I can relate to what you're saying in terms of trying to use everything in a musical way within the equipment. Like, mm. yeah, like, there, I think there was one person who did it before me, but using the, I'd not, to my knowledge, I don't think anyone had done it in a battle, was using the echo as a, a loop pedal. On, on that particular mixer I was using right, and making a song using the mixer and people have gone off to do like really crazy things with that like far surpass what I did in that battle. But like at the time I was like thinking about, Oh, how can I use that in different ways and make a routine just around the mixer doing this one thing or, yeah. um, because yeah, one, it was just really exciting. It was like these new ways to make sound and push what is a very, limited in uh, limited instrument in in a really cool way but like it's a very limited instrument and see what other things you can get out of these new like little like drops of technology that were emerging around mm. that time which was like 10 12 years ago and yeah being able to use them in um that context which was always always quite like headsy or always has been very headsy and traditional yeah so when you won that DMC competition, that was 2013, wasn't it? Yeah. Did that kind of really give you a new level of exposure and, and did that open the doors to like a, a massive range of opportunities? It, it really did. And I was really blown away by it. I was not expecting it. I was not happy with the entry I did for that competition. Like I almost didn't submit it because I, I couldn't get it exactly how I wanted. And I yeah. hand, handed it in late and all sorts because I was just like, ah, I've blown my chances. What could have been, you know? But I begrudgingly mm. uploaded it and then like posted it on a few things on online to go, here's, here's my thing, check it out if you want to. It's, it's what it is. <laughs> and like, yeah, and I woke up and it had got more views overnight than anything I'd ever done combined like prior to that in like the, wow. I don't know, four or five years I've been posting stuff and yeah, like I'm not going to name drop people, but people from America and um, the UK that I like really, really respected. Like one of the people on that actually on that record that I mentioned earlier, like one of those yeah. guys shared it and yeah, even before like I, I won the, the battle, I got, I got a booking agent. The, vi the video had essentially gone viral within that scene and I was starting to get bookings around Europe. I'd never played outside of the UK at that point. And so this was all in between uploading it and the decision of the competition. Yeah. Yeah. So what window of time is that? How long is that between the upload and the um, decision? It was like two or three weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, like people I played for before, had seen it and then gave me opportunities. Like, yeah, I, I got, um, yeah. Cause I, I remember it happened before I'd gone to the DMC world in September. I had like a, a, a one of my favorite ever bookings I, I, I got was in London, um, for Lex records and yeah, with, with, uh, MF doom, bad, bad, not good and Bishop Nauru. And I was like in playing in between all of those. And that was the back of that, like the, 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 uh, oh, wow. in-house person, um, she at the label, she saw it and was like, yeah, you want to come play the show? I was like, yeah, that would be awesome. Nice one. <laughs> and yeah, it was, I, I, I think it, it was so many different factors happening at the right time. Like, I think I was, I was, I was really lucky because of, of the timing of when I was battling, like I, it was the right place, right time with the technology being that mixer, the, the rain 62 had, had only come out that kind of battling season and I'd got one and had spent loads of time learning it and had found all this stuff and DMC had opened all these new rules around using Serato within that last couple of years. So I could now use all these things that I'd been learning and Facebook at the time, 
allow was still allowing reach to out external websites like you like YouTube for example. Yeah. It was before they had their own video hosting. So you could a video could be posted and people would actually see it, but like lots of people would be able to see it. Like people would share stuff. Yeah. And so I was lucky that way and I was lucky with the right people seeing it at the right time and there still being an interest for all of these things and the sort of music I was using at the time was relevant within dance music and stuff in terms of the scene I was in. I was just really lucky. Like, I don't think I was like, like particularly like, like I still don't think I'm like particularly like technical compared to other turntablists or anything like that. I was just, it was just like the right time and I just feel yeah. really fortunate, but yeah, it opened up everything and being able to like D- DJ around places and meeting a lot of people. I got, got involved with different labels and things off the back of it and got my first agent and was with him for a number of years. But yeah, something so. that must have must have um, been good for you, and this is why it was good to spend a lot of time on it at the start, is is the fact that you'd been a club DJ as well. We talked to Vect about it on episode two, mm-hmm. about how um, he'd been this kind of bedroom turntablist, and all of a sudden he was getting booked for shows, you know, in a good slot. It's like, right, I need to work out how to perform. Um, so I think for you, you know, musically, you know, you'd be used to that element of it. Um, which a lot of DJs, I think a lot of battle DJs probably from around the mid 2000s onwards were probably super bedroom. Um, right. So that's probably another thing that you had in your arsenal as well in terms of having a career as a DJ overall. Um, when you started getting those bookings, was there any kind of nervousness around... I've got to be this different DJ now because I've got this title. There was a little bit. There are a few things going on in my head. There was what sort of music are people going to expect versus what music do I consistently play? Because like you said, like I'd, I'd been putting on club nights, pushing like the more le- left, left field side of beats and dubstep and um, Duke and footwork music and all that hybrid stuff that was going on at that point in time. And I've been doing that consistently for years. Um, and I, and it's a massive stereotype, but I think when people think of a turntablist, they think of like classic rap records, funk and soul, or like super, super techie and not danceable. I think those are the two yeah. things that people expect. And I, ma- I remember at the beginning, people have like, booking me based off my videos and then going, oh yeah, so what do you play as we're driving to the club? And I was like, <laughs> okay, uh, like, oh yeah, I play this, this and this. And like, they end up really enjoying it. But I think it was maybe, I, I, like, I think there was like a little bit of time where people didn't know. So that was something I kept in mind was, okay, moving forward. I like from essentially from as soon as I uploaded that video, I was still putting up mixes and wanted to consistently go, hi, you might've just heard about me, but this is what I play. And this is how scratching works within the context of a club versus in like a video, which is the context of that is for me to do all the shredding, shredding and techers stuff. So like, this is, this is me. If you see me in a club, this is me. And I was just like doing as many mixes as I could and really put loads of effort into any of the opportunities that came my way after the MC. And that's something I've consistently done since. Like I try and do mixes every couple of months at least. I was going to say, because you do, yeah, because you stay very busy with mixes, don't you? So yeah. a part of that's almost managing expectation in a way. Yeah. I mean, as as a friend, you know how obsessive I am, but like that is a big, <laughs> uh, but like, um, like uh, managing expectations in terms of um, my musical output is like, is, is a massive obsession for sure. Like, obviously I want to surprise people, but like, I always want to pe- people to go like, this is what I'm doing right now this is what I'm doing right now. Like whether that's posting little videos of what a show might look like or, or music I'm working on, things like that. And social media has helped so much with that over the years as well. Yeah. So the next thing I wanted to ask you about is something else as well in and amongst the the club DJing. I think from my view as an outsider on the type of music that you play is you constantly seem to be on the kind of cutting edge of underground, you know, with like the Duke and the footwork and 
and all these sorts of things. Has it always been, have there been times when it's been easier or more difficult to keep on top of the type of genres that you play? Or do you just follow your heart and just go, like, do you think too much about what genre things are? Or do you just kind of go, if I like it, I like it? I more think about the latter. Um, as a listener and general fan of music, I'm always looking for stuff that I find like sonically interesting and yeah, like in interesting compositions and things like that, but also stuff that moves me in a certain way. I mean, like both physically and emotionally, you know, but um, yeah. it's less about trends for me. I've never really been someone consciously to jump on trends. I think when I was younger, like I got really into like the heavy dub dubstep stuff when I was like 18, 19. But aside from that, everything I've kind of been into is I've definitely not chosen the easiest route road. If I was trying to like jump on trends, like I was jump like yeah. into very small niche things at the beginning. And it, it's been kind of random when they've got more or less popular, but I've always kind of like followed stuff I'm into and um, in terms of has that got easier, uh, in some ways it, it in some ways it's easier, but in other ways it's not. Like back, like when when I was starting, you would only one like one would only find stuff that was released on vinyl, for like or, or CD maybe. So it was like you'd go to the record store and you'd ask them what new releases were out, and yeah. go through your your genres and maybe go to a few different record stores like for different special specialities and stuff, or maybe even check an online store for certain things and do a bit of ordering online and that but then the change to I'd, I'd say like the end of the 2000s i was buying more and more digital and less and less vinyl or cds and it would be certain radio shows i'd listen to and certain stores i'd go to to find new releases um like i listened to marianne hobbs like religiously the end of the 2000s when she was really really on board pushing like the flying lotuses the hudson mohawks the om unit stuff like that yeah. um and burial and stuff like that as well and um benji b also alexander nutt and uh om unit actually as well and um his radio show with Laurent fintoni i was yeah listening to all of the all of these people and um then, but the, these these days, there's just so much stuff, so many radio shows, so many um, like independent releases now because we can learn to mix and master ourselves and self-release and self-distribute through amazing resources like Bandcamp or people making their own stores or wh whatever it is. Um, there's just so much, and it's yeah. constant. So I find it a bit harder to keep on track of everything, but I I, I set aside set aside time every week to be digging for stuff, but the, it, it feels like there's never enough time, um, which <laughs> yeah. is really, is really exciting. And that's as someone who does this like full time, like I'm either making things or trying to find out about what other things are being made so I can stay on top of stuff. And, and yeah, just cause I, but mainly cause I just love it and love seeing how things develop and the conversation between different producers. Yeah. And that happens a lot quicker now than it used to because of the internet and also because how many people are doing it and how yeah and how long people have been doing it and all that sort of stuff yeah hey guys i hope you're enjoying Winter dj i wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on so i've teamed up with sure shot shop to create some Winter dj 45 rpm adapter clamps these are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup. These are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from oncedj.bigcartel.com and if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, check out showshotshop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start, or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ, and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. 
From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code ONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what are you waiting for? Visit howtomakemusic.co. Um, so you've done a lot of production as well um, and a lot of partnership production. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that all start? Like, initially, like I, I mentioned earlier, I got into very simple production with like arranging loops and stuff with EJ before I got my first set of decks, but I stopped for yeah. a long time. And I produced a little bit before uni with my friend um, Button Basher, which was more like making edits. And then we made a live show based around all these edits. But I didn't really produce very much again until after DMC. Like I could use Ableton and was making like small things, but nothing like like a yeah. proper record kind of thing. Um, I just felt overwhelmed by it. I, a bit of like imposter syndrome almost in terms of doing mm. it. And I was asked by two artists I previously booked at my club night, Will LV and uh, EAN, Ian, um, to do some scratching for some demos. They were putting together a beat tape. And I went down to see them and listened to what they've been making together and was really into it. And I said, I know, I said, guys, I know you've asked me to do scratching, but would you mind if I had to go out making some beats with you as well? I'd love to like learn. And obviously I like, love what music you make. And they're like, yeah, sure. So, uh, and that ended up being, uh, goals. And then we've, we've now done two beat tapes or albums, whatever you want to call them Yeah. since. And the first one was very much me. My, my contributions to it were the scratches and then very much trying to like work out how to use Ableton and some synthesizers better. Mm. And I learned very much projects moving after that by collaborating with people. Um, a few, a few people in particular, like Ian and Will, and then uh, my friend Tristan, who produces under the name Tebis. And then um, uh, I'm trying to think of like projects where I, I did a lot of stuff. Like Shield would be the main one. We worked together for like a few years, like a lot, and I made a live show together. Um, and recently Arcane. Um, uh, but like, there's been other people as well, like I've done one-offs with, which have I've learned a load from but it, yeah it's like gaining experiencing how people do things and then kind of taking ideas from like or like techniques from various people and then like kind of slowly finding my voice and now i'm trying to do that just on my own um yeah. i'm still collaborating but like i'm in a position now where i like i kind of understand like fair bit about mixing now and sound design and arrangement well, i'm happy just doing stuff on my own and um i often describe it as like having a, a form of an accountability partner because yeah. when I'm working with someone, because it's the confidence in ideas. And when I was learning, I was like, like I said, having an imposter syndrome almost of, I know all these people because of my experience being a DJ, but I feel like a bit of imposter being put in like a writing situation with them mm. um, with significantly less experience. But really it was more like the technical side of things that I, I was ignorant on, but wanted to learn about. And my ideas were not necessarily bad ones. And it was having that experience of like bouncing ideas of another person working out through their assistance or together working out how to engineer the ideas and things like that. And yeah, building up that side of my knowledge. And that's something I've slowly done post DMC in 10 years ago. And it's become more and more my thing. And I'd say that's my, my main thing now that and club DJing and then the turntablism stuff is like more of the backseat, but they all inform each other now. Yeah, yeah, these things all do, don't they? They 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 come together really nicely. So you mentioned about Shield, and I I don't know if this is the first time, but you've toured the show with Shield, haven't you? And you've done quite a few tours yourself. Have you organised your own tours, or have you had a tour manager to do it? Uh, so since two thousand and thirteen, after the DMC thing, I've I've uh, I've consistently had a booking agent. And then when Shield and I were doing our project, we got a, uh, a manager as well, who, who I still work with. Yeah. And and particularly for North America, it's been essential really to have someone 
working with us, like trying to navigate, going between all those different places. Yeah. Organizing like a, a good route between everywhere. And I said that in a very American way. I guess it's, <laughs> we're in North America in my head. Yeah. So yeah, organizing the route and then working out how to best do that and then sorting out the flights and stuff like that. Yeah, it's been really useful having other people involved. I mean, it's stuff I, I, I could do, but it just takes so much time and it's it's time away from making stuff. Yeah. Basically, but um, yeah, yeah. Like the, the experiences I had with S.H.I.E.L.D. were really, really amazing. Um, and I hope we get to do some more stuff at some stage, but the experience of going from playing completely other people's records a few years before to we're going to turn up and we've produced an hour show of just our own music and we're not going to deviate from it whether people like it or they don't it's a show and by the end of it like like i went in going ah, oh, what if people don't like it a little a little bit because it's very different from what either of us did individually from going to this is the best i just want to turn up and like write music and 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 do a show like by the end of it i was like i was just sold on the idea it was so much fun awesome and um- was there anything that you found different about being a performer in America versus being a performer over here? Like, was there more of an expectation of showmanship or was it the same? Or is the DJ held in a different way over there? Because you've done DJ shows over there as well, right? Yeah. What's that experience been like? I would say it's getting more and more similar I'd say between the UK and the States, the, the main, the main differences would be there's more of an emphasis on production in terms of like stage production. I mean, over right. there, um, a lot more like visual screens and things like that. So it's more of like a, a sensory experience rather than just audio, but you get that at a lot of gigs here and have done for a long time, depending on the type of music. Um, but musical tastes are different and, but cause it's such a big country as well. Like you're going to get different vibes in different places depending where you are. But yeah, there's certain stuff that certain type of music that would go down really well there that doesn't as well here and vice versa. And it was learning a little bit about that and yeah. how to pace a set in different places, like by playing more drum and bass audiences over here. Like I, I change records quite a lot when I play, but it's all very like it's very thought out in terms of how the um the energy gradually builds or like the rhythms gradually build across a set, even if the the songs are changing quite a lot. Whereas it's more of a roller coaster in some in some some events and at festivals and things in the states. Um, but I, I'm making kind of big sweeping statements here. There's like they're, they're both uh, they're both really fun and different i'm like i've i've had amazing times in both places well well that that up and down that's the big thing with edm isn't it it's like it's all about the drop so i guess that's that's a similarity and maybe that's because edm's massive over there right yeah i would say in like the more i went not mainstream but like the more popular heavier dance music in the uk is very similar it just sounds different like it's lots of big drops like like if you look at like like big, big, big drum and bass these days in the UK. It's all, the, 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 it's not, it, it's all, the, the, there's a lot of big drop emphasis or like build and drop recognizable bit from another song, big drop, recognizable bit, big drop. It's right. kind of the same similar formula, but different type of music. Um, it's not like, like more mainstream EDM in terms of the sound palette, but kind of like similar, um, what's the word for that kind of like expectations of excitement almost right yeah so i think they are more similar than sometimes people give them credit for it's just different sound palettes but but um I, i've also played like lot like and been to a lot of like smaller shows in the us where it's all about sound and all about pushing new stuff in the same way that people um uh speak so fondly about basement shows like um, plastic people and things like that and forward 
over here in in the UK, there's plenty of events like that in the US too. Um, it's just finding those those gems if that's the headsy experience one's looking for. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't know if you'll have an answer for this one, but I'm just wondering what what's your favourite gig you've ever done, and why, if you've got one. Ooh. I would say the first time I did a live show with Button Basher when I was like 19 um, because, yeah, there's a lot of sentimental value for me there. It was, yeah, like first time like really clicking with someone, making electronic music together and like putting ourselves out there to do something that was kind of unexpected for the events we were playing at. Right. Like taking a risk basically. Yeah. And then it working, but also like feeling like, yeah, like this is like a proper union with someone who we're on the same, <clears throat> we're on the same wavelength and it makes a lot of sense. And yeah, like I feel like a proper connection with someone musically. So I'd say that one, I'd say the same, similar with shield for the, for similar reasons of, yeah, we took a massive risk and, we worked on a project for a year or so together before showing anyone. And I think we put out a video or two videos and managed to book a tour of it without people seeing what the actual full product was going to be. And yeah. that could have gone spectacularly not well, <laughs> but it fortunately did. And again, luck of being in the right place and stuff. Like we played a festival and it turned into a load of bookings off the back of that. And again, it was just right place, right time. And on my own, um, it was an event I played at, but it was more about other acts that played. Uh, I used to just used to be a resident uh, event in Birmingham called Under the Counter, and the guys booked uh, Africa High Tech, which is Steve Spacek and Mark Pritchard, and they did a, a show with Mark DJing and Steve singing and doing effects and playing some synth over the top and. Yeah, I can remember the the lights coming up and Steve singing this beautiful, soulful voice and Mark's playing all this like beautiful, ambient, crazy jungle. And yeah, that was like a huge moment, I think. And I've got plenty of like going to gig moments like that as well. Yeah, um, yeah and a few, a few moments where uh, I've, all, I've, I've had, oh, this is going to sound like proper like DJ ego mode, but like where... Uh, where I, I've got completely lost in things where I've kind of had to shake myself and have almost have like an out of body of experience going, is this actually real? I'm getting like, like I'm, I'm in a foreign country playing pretty bizarre niche dance music and people are enjoying it. And I've, I've been paid to be here and I'm just, it just doesn't feel real. And I have to, I, and I snap out of it and go like, oh yeah, I've got a job to do. I better, better do it. I've had that a few times of going like, this, this is mad. This is happening. And like, this is all I've ever wanted to do since I was like little. And it's in this moment, this like kind of dream is happening and, and stuff like, yeah. Stuff like that is really, yeah, it's nuts. Yeah. That, well, I just think just the moments where you have, like, I know, I know one that I had. Um, and it's that thing where you just, for me, what I think about with that is when I just felt on top of the world and you just feel like you're just absolutely killing it. And you just, in this moment, everyone's loving it. The vibe's there. Um, so yeah, so you've kind of answered that with that last one. Yeah, it's the perfect union of it. It's the perfect union of everything and then just like feeling really grateful, but also like it doesn't feel real. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's really nice that for you, the things that hold value as well are those places where there's the real click with people. Yeah. Um, that's really, really nice. So just for one last question then, John. Um, mm -hmm. If there's one kind of killer piece of advice you'd give anyone who's looking to start DJing, um, what would it be? Yeah, if, if I was starting now, I, there's it's easy to get lost in what other people are doing, particularly social media now. And the biggest lesson I think I've learned and something that's served me well over the years is um, playing the long game and really sticking to what it is you enjoy. And it's longer because like, if, if you're doing something that's really popular and trendy at the moment, there's more people doing it. So it's easier to find work or like opportunities or maybe conversely it might actually be tr trickier because there's more people trying to do the same thing. But 
if you've got like a specific thing you want to do and you don't see it represented or you don't see, um, yeah, or, so, or someone represented uh, doing what it is you do or um, from your background or something like that, it's creating your own your own event or your own your own sound if you're a producer and taking your time with it and just like making something that is important to you because the other stuff will come like with practice like your your mixes will get better and whatever it is and people will notice because you're finding an individual voice for yourself like um for me like i'm not the most technical scratch dj but i found a like a style by exploring things that are really important to me. And same with DJing at the time, there weren't that many people playing that sort of music. Um, and going out on a limb and like get confusing some people, but then other people get really getting into it. And you kind of just like find your, find your tribe, I guess, by doing, doing your thing. And um, yeah, just having fun going, enjoying. Yeah. It's, it's the, the journey, not the destination to use that old chestnut. Of just in, just enjoying it and enjoying creating without expectations, and I found that as soon as I let go of expectations, that things happen way more because I'm not so pressured about something happening, and um, I'm just enjoy, enjoying creating for the sake of creating, and that's yeah, pretty much often when the most results happen, ironically. No, I think you nailed it there because um, not having expectations means that you're more likely to make decisions for the right reasons, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also said with like no judgment for making decisions based on business. I make some decisions based on business, like depending on how many, how often I make a mix, for example, or like how many videos to post that week, all that sort of stuff. But like the core thing being um, taking my time and, and, being consistent as well. That would be the other thing of like practicing as much as you can or whether that's writing or mixing or um, scratching, whatever it is you want to do and enjoying the process of like finding a sound that's yours with one of those things and just enjoying the ride basically. And everything kind of like falls into place eventually. And where can people find you on socials, John? So I'm on Instagram at John first, J O N one S T. That's probably where I'm most active uh youtube as well like i have a big archive of stuff on there Mixcloud, there's at least 100 mixes from last 10 or so years on there and are these all slash john first all of yeah i'm at, at john first on most social media basically and yeah there's beat, beats mixes youtube videos everything really awesome it's been interesting to um analyze the past 25 years of your life like this and um, very different to the usual catch-up chats but yeah thanks a lot for embracing it and um i'll speak to you soon thanks adam and uh thanks everyone for listening thanks for listening to the one to dj podcast if you've got any questions or feedback or any suggestions for guests please just get in touch with us at one to dj podcast at gmail.com or on instagram at one to dj podcast Take care, and we'll speak to you soon.